0: This is the Project Up and Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, Ann Jandernow returns for the fifth time in our annual preseason rough grouse and woodcock hunting chat. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 150. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, a Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Got a great show for you today. We're going to get into it very soon. I'm in the midst of getting packed up, finishing up some work things, and I'm hitting the road tomorrow, heading west for my first hunt of the season. I cannot wait. Today is September 15th. Our friends in Michigan have officially hit the Grouse Woods, Minnesota and Wisconsin opening up this weekend. And with all of that exciting stuff going on, I thought, what better time to get in touch with Ann Janderna of Northwind Setters and Scout and Hunt Mapping, catch up on dogs, grouse, woodcock, talk a little hunting, talk a little mapping. It's our annual conversation. I teased it last week. It's one of the most anticipated episodes from longtime listeners, and I look forward to my conversation with Ann each and every year. We had a good one this year, no doubt. Some things on people's minds, including drought conditions. We took some listener questions. We covered a lot of ground, and we had some fun doing it. Got a longer episode this week, so I'm going to get into it very quickly. But before I do, I want to share something that Anne wanted to make available to the listeners, which happens to be a discount code for the Scout and Hunt mapping products. If you're not familiar with them, you'll learn a little bit more about them in our conversation today. Feel free to go back and check out old episodes with Anne and head to her website, mobilehuntingmaps.com. When you're there, if you're interested in using her maps this season, you can use the promo code Hunt 21 That's Scout, the letter N Hunt21. No spaces, all one word, Scout N Hunt21. That'll save you 15% on the Scout and Hunt maps from Ann Janderna or at Northwind Enterprises. That's all I got for you. I am super excited to kick off my hunting season tomorrow. Got a long drive in the car, but I should be hunting tomorrow afternoon. Can't wait. For all those in Michigan that got the jump start on Minnesota and Wisconsin, I hope you're having a great day in the woods and everybody else joining the fun this weekend. Looks like it's going to be a little warm, but hey, it's opener. Get out there, get after it, have some fun, have a safe and successful hunt. Best of luck to everybody. And I will check in with you when I return from my Western road trip. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the podcast once again of Scout and Hunt, Northwind Enterprises, and Jandernaw. And Janderda, welcome back to the podcast. One of the most anticipated episodes of the year, both by me and the listeners. Thanks for joining us today, Ann.
1: Hi, Nick. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing really well. It's se- September. The sun is shining. We're starting to get some cooler evenings. And I mean, I know a lot of people are hunting out west right now, so I've got a little bit of FOMO going on, but I'll be out there soon enough.
1: Good. It was 36 here this morning.
0: Was it really? Yes. Wow. Wow. And on that note, why don't you remind folks kind of where home base is? Where are we talking to you from, Ann?
1: Um, I'm about 25 miles north of Park Falls, up in a little town area, but most of the time I'm out in the woods, which you can't call me. <laughs> <Sorry>.
0: <laughs> yes, I have learned that from experience.
1: Yes. Yeah. I'm not, I, I can. you know, it's nice. I'm just at home in that type of environment. And, uh, but yeah, I'm in Wisconsin and I run a lot between Wisconsin and Northern Michigan as well.
0: So. Yeah. Well, like I said, this is a I, w- I went back and I, I kind of knew the math in my head, but I did some double checking. This is, this pretty much marks four complete years of the podcast that I've been hosting. And it marks the fifth time you have joined us for our annual kind of grouse preseason interview. And so pretty exciting.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. It's always fun to have a good chat about the grouse, dogs, outdoors, everything else.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I would imagine that you're a pretty popular person this time of year. Are you getting lots of phone calls from people excited about the season?
1: Yep. Yeah, I get quite a few calls. It actually starts around June. Sure,
0: sure. (laughs) We can't help ourselves.
1: (laughs) yeah you get so a few of them i'm starting to recognize the numbers
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it's okay it's all it's all good i mean it's part of being hopefully a, a helpful resource to people um because you know as you plan a trip you're thinking about oh you know did i pick the right spot what's the weather doing you know if, you know and you have you're excited but you're you're wondering if you did the right thing. And of course I can't predict the weather. I don't have that crystal ball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's, I'm glad when people call.
0: Yeah. And I, I have no doubt that there is a, there's a baseline level of phone calls where you're, you're always taking calls year round because you know, very well as someone who's passionate about this stuff, you know, we're kind of, we're always thinking about it anyways.
1: And I don't think it's ever too far from someone's mind. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be sitting in the dead of winter you know watching the football game, with your hands probably on your dog
0: pet bit, uh yep, that's exactly right, you
1: know, you know those eyes looking at you like, how many more months until we get to do this again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, indeed, well, as I mentioned this is this is your fifth time on the show, so I hope a lot of listeners are are familiar with you, but just in case we've got i i mean, I know we have new listeners from year to year, so give us a brief sort of bio you know intro as to your businesses and some of the things that you provide and offer and then we'll get into our conversation today
1: um well for many years i was very active being a guide for right around 20 years now and i do that very limited at this point uh my business is the core i have two cores for my business one is uh northland setters which has been around for quite a while and those are what they are is they're of course i just said setters They are European mainly setters that I import uh, those lines, and I specifically train for grouse dogs, Uh, and I train in in the Northwoods here. So there's that. Uh, The other one is my mapping application, Scout and Hunt, which is primarily for upland, and uh, it it helps you know where the cuts and the harvest and the fields and the wetlands and all that are. Uh, You can plan your hunts 20 hours away from home and figure out where you're going to go. And it works offline. Uh, it's it the whole state, primarily on most states offline, and you know it's just it's it's a little different application than everything else that's out there, and, and I'm happy with it.
0: Yeah, very. I mean, it was it was certainly born out of a very specialized need as far as you know forestry data and mapping, and it's and it's of course expanded into a whole bunch of other stuff now, which which we can get into, but definitely a, a valuable valuable resource for grouse and woodcock hunters that are trying to be as informed as possible. Yep, that's correct. Well, before we talk a lot of birds, I would definitely like to talk dogs. Let's just kind of find out what's going on in the world of Northwind Setters. Did you have puppies? What's what's going on in the world of dogs for Anne?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting. Yes, I had puppies. My, my females were, I don't know, they were trying to be super moms and gave me 16 puppies between two of them. <laughs> yeah. And I train a lot of started pups. So I have 12 started pups I'm working with right now. I've got about three to four more like year and a half ones that are going to go out. And uh, this summer was really, you know, the other summers, you know, I, I guess I see a change. And and I don't want to say I'm one of these people that just oh, climate change, climate change, you know. I try to sit back and just watch what's happening around me. But when it starts to affect me a little bit in my training, then I'm like, "Huh," you know. Yeah. And everyone knows about the heat. They know about how how much that plays a part. And, I mean, it was difficult, very difficult to train in June, July, and half of August. Uh, And I used to have really good training in June. Sure. Uh, You know, and I used to, you know, it it just – it's been more extreme than anything, so I've had to do other things. I've got I've got setters looking like every once in a while like they got part lab in them because they like to retrieve bumpers out of a small pool. I have tried to do other things <laughs> with these pups, you know, to keep stimulating them but not overheat them. The bars, you know, that's what I've been mainly doing. I didn't post a lot this year on. Facebook with the dogs because I was getting so many calls for puppies for non-hunting
0: homes. Really?
1: Yeah, it was it was getting nuts, and you know I had everything already taken care of, but you know and sold, and it was just nonstop. And then just I was like, okay, you know, and they were getting, you know, I kept hearing, I saw it on Facebook, I saw it on Facebook, and so it was getting to be a little bit, I guess, maybe nuisance. So. You and you don't want to offend anyone and say no, i selling you. Know? Right. So it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just I'm responsible for where these pups end up. This is the rest of their life, and the choice needs to be made, and it needs to be right for what they love to do. And you try, you try to match the home with with the puppy, even the personality of the puppy and the way the person hunts. You know, it's like when you talk to someone, you need to know their style of hunt. And I'll ask them a lot of questions. that gives me an idea how they're moving through the woods or if they get off the trails or do they, you know, how much are they hunting and how much exercise and what's the backyard and what's the life of the pup going to be. And, you know, these all dogs, I mean, can you imagine your own dogs not ever being able to hunt?
0: No, I would feel very bad for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same way here. I mean, you know, I look at the little pup that's waddling around or, you know, it's you know, four or five months old and I just see a bright future, you know, and it's like anyone, I mean, I don't have children, but (laughs) I have to say sometimes it feels like I got some four legged ones, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you just, you want the best for them and and you, you know what they love. So, you know, it's like we all need to do stuff that we enjoy. Otherwise we're not happy campers.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. Goes without saying about the dogs. I mean, most people that have, have bird dogs or spend time around them. I mean, the sheer excitement that they express just when given the opportunity to go run through the woods or run through a field, I mean, it's, it's so obvious at that point, you know, just how how much their desire and their, they were born and bred to do it It has been said many times, but it's, it's very apparent when you spend a little bit of time around a, a bred bird dog. Yep. It's,
1: it's a passion. No different than us wanting to go hunting. This is just as much a passion for them. Yeah to be doing the same thing you yeah. know i look at these guys and, and it, what's interesting the mornings are always different this morning was different it's 36 degrees so all these pups were like wired to go it took a, it took a little bit to calm down wasn't bad but i saw the level of what they were putting out they were more driven you know and you gotta understand puppies my pups are not yet six months old and we're doing a starter pistol. We're doing birds turned loose in the woods. I mean, I've got 40 acres of trails all over the place, and I back up. i actually in county land. And uh, there's the quartering. I've seen the quartering. You know, you see a young pup bounce from one side and bounce from the other side of the trail. And, and you know it's doing it, but it doesn't know why. It's doing it. Uh, and all of a sudden, and it used to be because when they were smaller, they'd try to go in and they'd hit a bush or something get, Thrown back because they don't know to look for the holes yet. Yeah, and uh, this morning they were; lot of them were just busting brush.
0: <laughs> you, know,
1: you could just see the change. Like, wow, I love this cold weather. It's colder. This is great. So it was a fun morning to watch young young pups.
0: Yeah, well, there's there's no doubt it was it was extremely hot this summer. I, I think yeah, kind of to your point, you were getting at. You know, it's, sometimes it's hard to get out of that very narrow window of like recency bias. You know, we think about this year compared to last year where that's not really a long-term trend, but I mean, no matter which way you slice and dice it, this was, this was a hot year. And of course we've got, we've got really abnormal drought conditions, which we're going to get into. There's listener questions about that. That's kind of the the burning question for a lot of folks. So we will talk about that, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of heat. It's been very dry in, in most areas, less so in the upper great lakes and some of the grouse ranges, but still quite dry. Um, it's, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting one. And right now we're kind of, we are getting some cooler temps I mean, 36. That's, that's, that's crazy. I don't, I don't think we've dipped that low yet. We've got the, got the lake insulating us a little bit, but starting to get those very nice feeling, cool mornings and evenings. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's much welcomed I mean I'll take under 50 degrees any day yes to hot. I just I like cold weather anyways that probably goes back to my sled dog past but yeah when I run sled dogs but
0: I like it cold yeah I could uh I'm definitely known to enjoy a, a few days laying around on the dock at the cabin in the summer but if if the temp ranged between 30 and 55 all year I'd probably be pretty happy
1: yeah yeah. I, I
0: agree. Be nice. So, you, do you still have all sixteen puppies right now?
1: Um, no, I let one gentleman came out from PA. He, he he took two. first, he was supposed to take one. He liked them both. And he went back and forth, back and forth. The next thing you know, he went home with two. And then, <laughs> and he's done very well with them. And then uh, two other ones uh, went. So no four so before yes be 12 yeah there's 12 here right now
0: okay and are you you have plans to keep a couple or three or four
1: nope uh i've got things set up where you know some of these females i like them a lot and uh so i talked with the owner and prior to the puppy being born and said you know this is what i need i need access to some of these females for at least one or two breedings and so I work a deal with them, uh, and I try to keep my females for the most part, not all the time, but the most part, within five hours of me. Okay. Um, so I've, I've set up a network of that, and I've got the males here, you know, and then I've got a couple other males that are not very far from me that are from my lines that I can access. Otherwise, you know, there's probably enough people think I'm already overrun with dogs, because I have usually anywhere from five to eight in the building with me, so <laughs> um, Lounging around, even though I don't have a fireside to put them all the lay in front of. Me, <laughs> <sort> of funny, <laughs> but but you know you can only have so many, and, and you can't you get too many, you can't do justice to them all. So I have my main core uh, imports that are mainly with me.
0: Yeah, are, do you have a set time when the rest of them will go home? Do you like to keep them to a to a certain age?
1: Well, right now where I'm at, and like I said, there was. I easily lost a month and a half to two months of training
0: because
1: mm. of the heat. I I just will not push puppies and dogs. Just I don't believe in it, and that's that's part of that's mine. You know, everyone else, but this is what I'll do. Yeah, go with the speed of the pup, but the temperature is what dictates also as much as you know. You can all want to go, but that doesn't mean you should go. Um you know, type thing. You know, you and I both know a dog will run a good dog. doesn't care about the temperatures. Mm-hmm. It's just the hunt. And sometimes you've got to put a throttle on that and dial it back. And right now the puppies are all, they're going to start going out right around the first of October. And some people won't be showing up to hunt up here until like halfway through October. Yeah. And so I would say by, by November, The only I've got like three that'll be carried over for next year, but they're already sold for as uh, started pups. Uh, Actually, they'll be started dogs by then because they'll be over a year old. Uh, So I mean, I I try to try to you know have everyone gone in basically a year, year and a half. Yeah. And uh, so, and I've got another gentleman I work with, another trainer down in Virginia. So I'll send three or four down there, and they'll be getting training through the winter when we can't
0: train. So okay. it's, uh, but yeah. Okay. So, and I know you mentioned starter pistol. We've got, sounds like we've got some gun intro and some bird intro and stuff. Are the pups getting run on wild birds at this point?
1: Yeah, My property has both. Okay. Um, there's grouse. Um, we put up six or seven grouse this morning on the property. And then we also have liberated quail. And what's nice about the quail is that they're not so much They've learned to move out. They're running under the ferns. So I like that because, you know, that's the same thing with grouse. What would a grouse do? You know, they'll hold for a little bit and and then they move. Uh, And so my quail aren't always just sitting covered up someplace. Um, Once they start moving, they start moving under the ferns. So a lot of times it's stop, point, release, stop, point, release. And it works good for tracking um, for the young pups. It's like practicing a layup. You know, you're gonna practice, practice, and finally you dunk it. And the dunking it would be when the bird goes up and the fence goes off. So yeah, we have both on the property, and I think there's even a couple woodcock, but I haven't bumped into them yet. It's so dry. I think they've also shifted a little bit closer to the streams.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another thing we'll we'll definitely get into. I know that I I have not. My bird search at this point is very casual. I'm, I'm basically exercising the, exercising the dogs, but I can do it in areas where there are some grouse, and we've been getting into some grouse. My my sort of casual bird contacts are, are getting up there now to where it's mm-hmm. I'm feeling pretty good. I know I know we're flushing the, the same birds from time to time because we're we're making you know, we're running kind of the same circuit, but I uh, have not seen any woodcock, and and I haven't gone looking for them. But I have a I have a feeling that yeah they're probably concentrated in some other areas.
1: Yeah, moisture's key right now. Without that, you know, the top, you know, my area's a little different where I'm at. It's really dry. I mean, mean, I've got uh, an area where there's aspen. Aspen's probably 12 years old. And it looks like it's the second week to the third week of fall. Mm. I mean, the they're 90% off in that one area. And it's like, but it's just a little higher in elevation, and it's dry. And we just have not been hitting the rains here, but uh, yeah, the the what's interesting is is that these birds are up tonight. This morning they were they weren't so much on the ground as they were in the trees eating eating aspen leaves and stuff. They were up in up in the trees this morning. Hmm. And like I said, I've got a couple little areas on the property where it always seems like I find quite a few of them there. And then you know this is where they're born, and then they shift out from here.
0: Is Eating aspen leaves, is that something that, uh, like, as soon as a grouse can fly into a tree, will they will they hop up there and start eating aspen leaves? Or is there is at that time of the year, is there just so much other stuff where that's not a focus? I mean, I know they do that, but I don't really think about them just jumping up into a tree and eating aspen leaves very much.
1: I don't either, you know, but it's like, I always know in the early September into almost, when the leaves start really, when the leaves aren't supple anymore you know they're starting to you you can you start to get a crack out of them yeah. when you, if you were to cr- try to crush them i mean they're not cracking to pieces but they're cracking just a little bit they're getting dry i mean and i use this it's probably a stupid analogy but i mean we all like to eat roast those of you that like to eat roast but i like roast <laughs> 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 and i want my roast roast not dripping wet not dry crusted. I like it right in between, and that's <laughs> what grouse like in those in those leaves. They like it moist, and with uh, it's not just it has to be like it be wet, but it can't be dried out. I mean, all yeah. well, all these birds are going to look for food sources that are have still have moisture and uh, structure throughout the leaf, um, because we think about it, you know, that moisture that's part of the fermentation process when it gets in the crop. You know, when you Oh, take a grouse and you open the crop this okay this is gonna sound stupid but it, you smell it if it smells fresh like a salad they just ate mm, yeah it's if it's fermentated then there has been a while you know so when i was guiding a lot we'd, I mean, we took a bird here and we took a bird over there and you know if the days were sort of the same the way the sun comes up the temperature the dew coming off and everything you st- you can literally start to get an idea of a pattern okay so what time did we take this bird what time did we take that bird you know and you're just like i wonder if they're running a pattern i think this is where they're coming out of this is where they're at and this is where they're getting started to you know like when when the dew is totally off and then it's getting hot around 10:30, 11 o'clock that they're just gonna roost and just sort of settle in, you know, and not really move a lot. It gives you an idea of where they're spending their time.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, because even this early in the season, unless they're a male, they're sort of in group, you know, and, you know, an adult male drummer, not 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 the birds of the year. So it was always interesting. But I'd always be interested okay, what does the crop sucks? You know, smell like, and a smell will tell you how, roughly, how long has it been since that bird really ate.
0: Right, right. Is there is there a, an immediate or a direct takeaway? that you know, say you kill a bird that it's there's some ferment smell in there, so you know it ate a while ago. Is, does that get you thinking about the next bird in in a certain way?
1: Yeah, it does because you know, I I like you and I talked about that one cut that one time it was quite a few years ago and you had nice tag alder and you had conifer and first you had first you had to cut and you had the conifer and the tag alder and then it went down to a stream something like yep, that yeah i
0: remember it yeah
1: and and it's like there's places that it seems like you find birds you know what i'm saying and then there's places that i don't know we get through this and we're going to get to where we where i usually find them yeah. you know we all said this and times of days, you know, I'm always interested sometimes is how far, I mean, I, said I would love to put a GPS on these birds, you know.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah. It's too much knowledge and it wouldn't be fair, but but you know, just what these birds do, how much they double back, you know, and you know, how much are they spending in quality time in this area, loafing quality time in this area, feeding the time frame between where they roosted to where they go to go to eat and then back and forth and you know i don't think the world is that big of an area so you know if you have uh you know until they start doing a dispersal it's just it makes me think about what level did i find the birds at what time of day at what was my temperature what's my dew, what side of the hill where what angle was the sun how and also what was my dog doing yeah And dog doing is what I'm thinking there is that how many was the dog still somewhat fresh or a little bit played, played out. I mean, warm or hot. I mean, sometimes a dog that's hot inadvertently may have to take their nose. Isn't as sharp because, you know, they're breathing through their mouth and everything instead of taking things through their nose. And, and so sometimes you'll get, you actually will push a bird for a little bit till all of a sudden the dog's like, Oh, there's something there. But if the dog's really fresh, I mean, it's like, bang, it's right here, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's just, I used to write all this down. Now I just sort of keep it up in my head. <laughs> about, okay. This area is this, and this happened here and here and here, and this is where the birds are going to run. And you know, this is where I would need to be. And I just, this time of day, I remember the first time I, um, when they make that shift from eating on the floor and the salads are all gone mm. to eating the buds. And I can still see it in my mind today coming down a hill, going down into, okay, picture a ice big hill come down to your hardwoods and you're coming down this hill and it would sort of angle because you couldn't take it straight down because of the uh, steepness. And then, and then the ground just flared out nice. Went, okay, so you went from hardwoods then to a hardwoods ironwood mixed, then ironwood to hazel brush and then hazel brush to a little bit of a shrub component and then there was patches of uh, conifer and that gave way to the to the, the creek yeah and and it was these narrow bands of habitat and i remember i looked looked as we're coming down i was almost eye level with a birch and i look up there and there's a bird eating you know a grouse eating the catkins off of a yellow birch and i'm like huh and uh and then and then we opened the crops and the crops were starting to be capkins from the uh hazelbrush and that's you know and i read where gordon gillian talked about the transitioning but then it was actually to put the idea of the time and you know what was happening and it's like aha okay so these birds have transitioned their diet and this is many years ago when you first when you first start guiding, you're grabbing for everything you can sure. to try to do do it right, and you know after that, you know I just was like, this is what I target. You know, up till then, I had clients up until that day that just kept missing everything. So I didn't get a chance to look but um, no, that's. Uh, I know
0: I've jumped around on subjects for you yeah well you've you've got like my my brain is just firing here because i've I'm actually right in the middle of reading Upland Shooting Life by George Bird Evans. i would never read that before, and I'm just reading it, and he was pretty meticulous about his record keeping and, and mm-hmm. made some made some really very good observations people that have read it will will know about you know he checked a lot of crops from a lot of birds over a certain period and I mean really the the whole food thing. I mean, it plays a huge role in where the grouse are when they are there, but it's just so complex. There's so many layers and and they're such a, you know, they're such a generalist because they have to be. They're so adaptable. It's hard to just put, you can't just put your finger on one thing and say, oh, here's the, you know, here's the thorn apples or here's the dogwood. Here's the grouse. That just doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not just the food. It's also the density of your cover that's around the food. Um, how far do they have to travel? What's And what's the understory like? What's, you know, all that? They can't just run around out in the open. Yep. You know, if they are, it's going to be labeled dumb bird, you're gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it, it's just, and it's an elevation structure as well as density structure uh, with habitat. You know, it's, it's a combination of so many things that have to come together. I, I guess that's what makes me think, and I've always thought they're very special birds and they're complex.
0: Yeah. Very wild and very, as adaptable as they are, they need a very specific set of circumstances to do really well. And, and I think, I mean, I know it's, it, for me, it's just like, it's almost a treasure hunt, just trying to find that kind of habitat, you know, and finding, yep. finding new covers and just looking for that, that right mix where you just look at it and say, that's, that's grousy habitat. I mean, that's really like most of the fun for me right there.
1: Well, that and it's but you have a place like you want to check out and okay, you drive by or you get or maybe you only had like you only go to the little 50 60 feet down the trail oh, it looks great looks great question is how far does it go how big is it and you know what's all surrounding it you know you can get in the first part can look fantastic and then all of a sudden it's like well this died out
0: on me yes yep yeah <laughs> it happens to everyone yeah So here's, here's kind of a, we'll kind of sort of keep this random question thing going here. Thinking about spots, walking through a spot, let's say you find that you identify a spot, everything looks right. You go through there, don't see any birds, or maybe you flush one or two and you're just, you're underwhelmed. Do you have any rules or systems in your head for saying, you know, I will go back here another time or two just to check because, you know, you can't, nothing's set in stone after a day. Like, how do you think about that as far as like having one unproductive hunt
1: well okay you have a seasoned dog i have a seasoned dog for people that don't have seasoned dogs that's difficult that's really difficult you and i would both look at this and say okay that dog got sent tracked a little while and then the scent disappeared right there that tells me that that grouse ran and it ran hard and i think some other people have been in that same cover you know, a lot of times, when, you know, unless or maybe you got a high weasel population or whatever. But birds are, birds don't come out as a young bird and learn to run like that. Pressure teaches them to run like that. So I'm looking for gets when it's coming, but when I'm getting back around to that, that. That is what is your dog telling you? You know, is it point, relocate, point, relocate? And no, all of a sudden, poof, it's gone in thin air. That bird ran hard. And, and that's, you know, my dog knows how to track. My, do- my dog knows what a grouse is. Um, they're there, but maybe I didn't approach the cover right. Maybe I came in from, let's just say we're looking at a rectangle, and the southern part of the rectangle, which would be the long part, and then you got the north, side, the south, and the north would be long, and your east and west would be your, you know, shorter. So that's how I'm looking at it, just a rectangle in front of you, north, south, east, west. And Let's say you came in from the northeast corner and your trail sort of meanders and starts to drop down and your elevation is going down to the south, you know, because it's going to be south. That'll be where your shrub component goes into um, conifer and your conifer goes into maybe a bog or a or swamp or water or whatever, you know, that's where the thick stuff is. And you've got up high, you've got your hardwoods. And your hardwoods will give way to the aspen cut, and the aspen and the hardwoods will intermingle, and then the aspen covers majority of the rectangle until you get to the south. And you're going to come in at the northeast because really the trail sort of runs from the northeast to the south southwest. And in the morning, okay, if if it's pressured, let's go this. If it's pressured, everyone's coming in from the northeast. Yeah. Okay, what I'd do is go along the northern border drop down the western border go to the southwest and then angle back yep and hang a little close make sure your dog casts to that southern edge and get yourself in between the birds and the cover they seek to escape reverse what everyone else is doing because everyone else is coming in on the cattle path and that's what i would suggest doing so but let's just say the first time I went and looked, I was getting a whole bunch of what everyone would be hollering at, and saying false points, false points. I said, no, 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 they're telling me something about this place. That's the difference, you know. False points tell you something about what's going on, unless you don't have faith in your dog,
0: right? Yeah,
1: and you just you just think he's pointing mice and
0: box turtles or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's um, a, that's a hard thing when you when you don't produce anything, then. You know, I I know I start asking my, you know, was she pointing a rabbit or this or that? And I mean, you build confidence and trust in your dog and you build that relationship over time. And then you kind of, you know, you give them the benefit of the doubt from time to time. But that's, that's one of the mysteries for sure.
1: Well, and you're going to read that dog. You're going to read that dog when it's on point working a bird and you come up with a bird. And you're going to see that same body uh, movement, structure, intensity, look. You, it's going to feel like the same feel to you, but it's going to, it should be a bird at the end of this. You know, all the drama's leading up, and then, boom, nothing. But then, two times before, all the drama led, led up, and up went some birds. So you learn to read that body language, and everything, but with a young dog, I get it. You're wondering, you know, I remember the first time I took out, a I had an OU pointer named Rain. She went on point, I thought for sure it was a woodcock, we all got ready. It was a box turtle. <laughs> I, I spent more time laughing about it than the clients. I said, oh, funny. I mean, she redeemed herself. I mean, but it was her first time guiding in that, and she was still really young. And she proved that she was good, but she could also point box turtles. <laughs> yeah,
0: I've, I've definitely, I, I know that it's kind of a thing. Dogs pointing turtles. I, I can't say that mine have ever done it, but I think a lot of dogs. There's a lot of turtles out in the sandhills of Nebraska, I think, and they get pointed a lot. But,
1: okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I had I one had a pointer. it point for quite and I never would touch them. Well... But it'd point them, even <laughs> up in the tree. it <laughs> point you, finds. Uh. That is much,
0: much better than uh, tangling with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, you don't <laughs> want to engage with that. But so, you know, you got, you got it where the people basically we're all coming in from the northeast so there's that you change changed the way you're doing things but sure. let's just say that you don't get to that cut there's a prime time to be in those cuts i mean and you know and you basically there's a window of opportunity especially early season and that window does change in the late season once you know an area a little bit you can think about it those birds are coming up from the low area you know in the mornings and did I say which way this the cut faced
0: yeah well, we've got we've got kind of an east west and east west rectangle okay. coming in from oh, yeah. the northeast yeah. is,
1: it, is it on the is it good at, let's just say the cut faces the whole cut faces to catch the morning sunrise
0: okay, so it's facing
1: okay. east, yeah yep, and the bottom we've got some nice big spruce, and they're going to cast a shadow through there, and the grouse loves shadows. They like that because they, they just they sort of they blend in.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Hard to pick them out. Yeah. So the dew won't come off of those shadow areas till the sun is higher in the sky, um, and we're saying also as sunny. Saying it's a nice sunny day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sunny day too. So we come in. I'd try to drop below those shadows a little bit, and then I double back. And run a parallel line right again against what I just did. And the reason is, is that my first thinking is, is that if I'm the first one there in the morning and I know the dew is still real heavy, they're not going to want to move.
0: Because they don't, they don't want to get wet. They don't want to be walking through right. dewy cover.
1: Yep, because, okay. you know, rest out a bird and what happens? It doesn't take much when you're breasting it out. The feathers are sticking there. everything. Yep, yep. And, and for those of you that are listening, that what you can do is, say, you get a bird in the morning. Find some tall wet grass and just wipe that bird in that wet grass and look how quick the feathers, you know, go back and forth a couple times. times. You know, those feathers start to stick together extremely quick. Yeah. Uh, there's very little oil in a rough grouse on the feathers. And they're probably one of the easier birds to taxidermy. It's just they're very easy to work with. But uh, what you're going to do is you're going to at least what I do is I'm looking, I'm looking for my, I've said this before my pants are half wet and half dry, that's when things are going to start to happen. Yeah. You know, and and they want to, they're going to look at this and they'll go out some, they might get a little wet, but they don't want to be soaking wet. And when you look, like if you're trying to figure out when to go into a cut and you can bump up against a tree and it feels like a shower, uh, same thing. What if You know, that's what a bush, what a fern, all that's going to do to that grouse. Yeah. They're just not going to move yet. So well, timing is a big thing. So you get there in the morning. You basically, I like would like to run between the where they came out of and what they headed to. I want to cut it off. I'm trying to separate them and then and force them up the hill and then double back and catch them before they come back down. And it, this all sounds easy. It, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's easier said than done. But watch your dog. Watch which way it keeps tracking. Is it tracking up? Is it tracking down? And if it keeps tracking down and it starts to take a sharp turn to track really sharp down, you know, instead of gradual, you know, then you may want to shift yourself down and out and ahead just a little bit. Because more than time, more than not, that bird's running and tracking right back into the thick cover. Yeah. I don't know if that explained it. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that was a that was a lot of lot of good grouse knowledge. I think, regardless.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where are we at
0: with this <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what I want to do, because we're almost 40 minutes in, and I have no, uh, no intention of, of cutting this short or anything, but I'm going to jump into the, the listener questions that, we, that I had sent in. I put a, for the listeners, I threw a little Instagram story up and asked for some questions, and, and we got a bunch of them. So I'm going to ask you those, and we'll sort of see what that covers, and then if I've got any questions at the end or we get talking, we'll, we'll do that. But uh, just bear with me for a second. I'm going to pull these listener questions up. And if I'm really on my game, I'll edit this out. So the people listening won't hear this. (laughs) All right. So this question is from Brian, a friend of mine actually hunted with him last year. And he was, he was just messaging me. This is just kind of a little fun anecdote, but we were, he and I were messaging last night. He was out running his dog. Uh, looking for birds, and he he sent me a screenshot of his map where he's his GPS track where he ran, and he walked right along the edge of a prime age aspen cut and a swamp, some kind of a swamp. And he flushed. He had he had five or six grouse flushes, and every single one of them was right along that swamp edge. And I'll I'll throw Brian's question in here now. So so he's asking resources to understand soil makeup and rainfall totals and how to interpret those for good habitat. So I know we've talked about the rain thing, and I know you watch that closely, but what do you look at to understand soil makeup and rainfall totals?
1: Well, okay, you're going to look at your density. Okay, let's go to soil first. Sure. Okay. Soil is really important because the better the soil, the better the even coverage of aspen through an area when it regenerates. Okay?
0: Okay. Can we define, like, how do we define better soil versus worse soil? Worse
1: soil is going to have more weeds.
0: More weeds, okay.
1: Yeah, better soil. And then you need to look this up. Bunchberries, strawberries, some ferns and that. And I know it changes like when you get over in the lower peninsula of Michigan, you mm. hunt a lot of aspen with ferns. But when you have good soil and you have a good aspen cut, and it's the only way I can think of doing it, explaining it, is that it's almost like a dance in the woods you're shifting in and out of the trees, turning sideways. And uh, it's not where you can just walk a straight line and just do a light zigzag over here and sure. all that. You don't want it that far apart. But it's it's where you have... And as your soil changes, you're going to start to find other timber types that are going to start to mesh with this aspen before the aspen gives way to finally... their transitions between the aspen cut... And the uh, hardwoods, you know, or something else, or oaks, or you know. And I, I realize oak is hardwoods, but in some areas it's just going to transition straight to oaks. And your soil will be darker. You you ha- will have more. You'll have areas where you just have a nice aspen can- canopy. You'll see the moss on the rocks. You'll see the nice hazel brush. And a lot of times, hazel brush likes gravelly soil, i.e., Minnesota. Mm, yeah. And you'll find gravelly areas down by you know, it's where the stream beds used to be a long time ago, you oh, know, sure. with yeah. the water and stuff like that there. But it's the density. It's it's looking through a stand and not seeing a bunch of holes. And then if you flip side it to the imagery, it's looking at imagery and seeing consistent small. They're not a full circle, but it's like half crown, and it's and when when they're really young. You can't even define a crown. It's one color. Looks smooth almost on imagery. And you'll see where where you have bad, really a lot of clay. You'll see smooth, open, smooth, open, smooth, open. But good cover is consistent. It gives you that, like, like someone took a paintbrush and just sort of took it and went from one side to the other. Just a nice big swipe. And then you'll see on the edges, you'll see where all of a sudden some conifer will just start to mingle with that nice aspen. And it's really, when you think about it, it's that canopy that's providing the safety. It provides the extra warmth in the summertime because it becomes a hot house type effect, which also helps decay the stumps and all the debris left over from logging. Yeah. And then you get the lush plants that come in, and it's finding those... Areas, you know, and when you're in steep, hilly, mountainous areas, where does all the good soil go? It goes down the hill eventually. You know, there'll be pockets of it, but it's not as deep as it will be where the where the mountain comes down, flares and goes level before it drops into a creek. You know, those are the pockets you're looking for good soil. Good soil, no different than a crop. Good soil is going to give you consistency,
0: more more biodiversity. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of lot of logic in that, and so. To kind of bring it back to Brian's question a little bit, are, do you do you do you look at do you look at things from your computer from your desk to identify soil, or is the is are you identifying so, you know soil quality just kind of by being out there and looking at stuff?
1: I think it's being out there and looking at stuff, but it's also understanding where the soil is going to be. Certain soils are only going to grow certain things, yeah. and it only grows the best things. You know, it's like. If you try to do an aspen cut in a hardwood stand, the hardwoods take over, you know, and the hardwoods don't want to take over in the aspen area. You know, it's like those aspens are in a certain area and they're going to thrive the best. And what he needs to look at is the density. And you typically will have the better density unless they mess it up logging and compact it where the best soil is. And the best soil is always going to be a few steps up from the water and the conifers where it's not always wet. And I'm not talking conifers. I'm talking black ash, you know, and not black ash, but black spruce type tamarack and that. You know, it's like it's an elevation change. It's stepping stones, so to speak. You go up one level, you go up another level, you go up another level. And so it's it's a flaring of the hillside into the level area before it drops into the, the denser cover that birds try to escape to. And that's where you find the best coverage. And it's been hot, and we've been in places that have lacked moisture. So a lot of these birds have been in the swamp all summer.
0: Okay, and then, Brian, the tail end there was was rainfall. And I know you've mentioned this before. Where do you go to look at rainfall totals, and then how do you interpret that a little bit?
1: I do go on NOAA. I can send you a link okay. for that. And I go on NOAA, and then I take, like, Wisconsin, I tap on the county information, And it's the annual precipitation analysis. And you look at the rainfall, you know, you can grab, you know, May, June, July, August and see what the rainfall totals are or the lack thereof. Yeah. So you can't just look at one month and say, oh, no, it was terrible here. Go back two or three months, you know, and say what led up into it. And then the other thing, too, is, you know, a lot of these places didn't get a lot of moisture content from the winter. Mm Hmm. yep so
0: yeah we didn't have a whole lot of snow so as it as it relates to rainfall just kind of generally speaking and i i think we've covered some of this in the past but if we see you know this year we're going to be we're going to be seeing very low numbers of rainfall totals and it might just kind of make this all this irrelevant but if we see a bunch of rain in june would we would we start to think not so good in that area or because it was so warm this year you know i've often wondered this and this may be a side question but if it's warm i feel like you know young you know of course a nest could get flooded or something but if it's warm and wet that's certainly better than being cold and wet how do you think about that
1: well for the for the birds for sure i think if it's cold and wet that just holds that moisture there longer until it gets warmer yeah, as far yeah. as plants and vegetation and trees And if it's warm and wet, here's where aspen's different, okay? When you cut an aspen down, of course, you see the stumps. But that root system, those trees sucker off of that root system. Mm -hmm. So it's like having, I don't know how to quite say it, but think about the tree before you cut it, and the root system goes way down, goes out lateral in different ways, almost like a spoke wheel, and then it goes down again. Well, those young trees of aspen, you know, basically already have a open path through the ground to sub layers underneath it, whether you might lose a lot of the moisture on top, but it's got a connective system to farther down. Sure. Where a lot of trees don't have to do, don't do that. They have to start out like especially sugar maple and stuff like that. they are seed growing up and they take off. I mean, aspen does do that, but a lot of the aspen generation is through the through the root system and we had a clear cut right by the camp and there's aspen that i i'm not very tall you know i'm not much over five foot it's taller than me and this was the first year growth Mm, yeah and so it it got it got all the it didn't get the moisture from the rainfall to grow like that it got it from the old stump there yeah in that root system so it, it with aspen aspen's just a little different
0: yeah okay and and then I guess one more sort of question. I, I think I don't think this will be the last thing that relates to the dry conditions this year, but I know that we have talked about the sandy soil versus clay soil. And in I, I recall specifically, I think this was three or four years ago, I was talking to you just, you know, not on the podcast, but just offline and was asking you about very sandy areas. And you made the comment that, you know, in a dry year, of course, the sandy area is going to dry out very fast. And I'm curious as to what implications there would be in a year like this if it's very dry in in those sandy areas now they're even drier are are you are they just going to lack food are they going to lack that you know that wild strawberry in the ground or like what's going to happen in those areas that are you know historically pretty dry now we've got very dry conditions
1: well it is you mentioned the food food can dry up very quickly yeah. you can end up with more weeds um a lot of those aspens will shed like the aspens on that gravelly little knoll are shedding their leaves already. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're gonna shift and hunt those areas closer to moisture, bogs, those type of things. You're gonna run any stream or any low area and you're gonna pay attention to your small plants in there. You know, that's they gotta have food, you know, because I mean they eat the bugs and, and that type of stuff the first few, you know, about five, six weeks, something like that, I can't remember, four weeks after they're born and then after that they go into basically plant source yeah and if they don't have that they're going to have to go someplace where there is and if the plants are dying up in a sandy area and just drying up and not making it you got to shift down to where the moisture is and where the shadows are you know you might want to find you know more the north side you know gets less sunlight than the south side you know of a hillside or how which way is that cut facing and And do you have shadows that hold that moisture in there from you know pines in the in those lowland areas that cast in over the cut? look for those because sometimes that's just enough to help an area along
0: yeah yeah and 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 it could very well concentrate birds in a year like this yes, yes. yeah so okay, yeah, so think cool, think damp if you're especially if you're hunting dry, sandy soils or or an area that just appears dry. I mean, you want to keep your eyes peeled for really anything green, you know, looking for that that moisture, really. Yep. All right, Matt wrote in. He didn't have a question, but he just wanted to reiterate that this is one of his favorite episodes to listen to while driving north for grouse. So thanks for that, Matt.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Okay, next question is from Kyle here, and he was interested in some conversation about habitat usage this fall as it relates to the early drought and late summer rain, so we've certainly been covering this topic. That was one thing that I was I was going to try to get to with my rainfall comment is, you know, if there's all of a sudden some rain, some late summer rains and stuff, does that change your thinking at all, or, or are we still just, you know, keeping our eyes peeled for the, the areas that appear to have moisture and food?
1: I think areas that appear to have moisture and food, because yeah. by August, the drought would have already taken the toll on a lot of the small plants in June july yeah it's sort of like think about farming if you don't have the moisture in june and july forget it you're not going to really have anything of a crop in august yeah. and into the late season it'll be stunned.
0: yeah okay all right this is from ted and it's a dog question ted heard that you recently explored a new breeding line and he was very curious on your thought process
1: well i'll say this up front and it's not to offend anyone and if you take offense, it was never meant to be. I'm into doing databases and looking at COI, COI coefficient of inbreeding. I like to keep my percentages down 10% or less and mostly under 5%. The higher percentage, you get up around 20, you get into autoimmune issues and things of that nature. I think I like dogs with low COIs and have bred and bred the same way for probably over 100 years. And When you go across the pond, you England, it's put hunting, walking it up. That's my style of hunting. There aren't horseback trials, though they do have other trials that the dogs should fly. But those same dogs will be taken and they'll hunt the European woodcock in the woods. And those same dogs will go and hunt the ptarmigan in the Alps, those birds, and then they'll hunt the chukar. So they're versatile. They're going every which way. And I can get dogs with low COIs. And I I did, like, a lot of years of research. before I ever sent the text. <laughs> or I should say the money orders or whatever you want to call it. I needed a dog. I want a dog that blocks. That has the potential to block. I don't want to hear that it's in the bloodline. Remember, so-and-so had a dog that would block. And I'm not talking pheasants. I want a dog that moves with the bird and i move with it and we work together as a partnership i needed a dog to fit my style i'm not saying it's going to fit everyone else's style but it has a really defined off switch in the house and then you flips that switch back out in the uh, woods um it fits what i do it's you know the dog goes on point and it cat crawls it slinks mm. it um You know, I get up beside it, if I shift to the left, it shifts some, but it's always keeping that nose like a compass of where it's getting the scent. So if it's getting pointing toward the west, I can shift maybe a little bit, looking at the habitat, and then the dog will go out and around. And it has respect for scent. I mean, I'm talking like I'm making up some beautiful dog, but that's what I look for.
0: Yeah. No, I a lot of that is is resonating with me. You said something that caught my attention there, referring to the dog blocking. Yep. And tell me what you mean by that.
1: In England, it's called ringing the birds. They know what it is. It's called ringing the birds, and the dog. It's really beautiful to watch. Dog goes on point, and all of a sudden, it'll the scent will waver, and it'll look at you, and it'll look at where it's point. Pointing, you know, cast a look from you, and then all of a sudden it just breaks off, and you think, "Oh my god, the dog is losing me!" <laughs> but then you see it go out and around, and now it's facing you. And guess what's in between? The bird. The bird. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's where I'm pretty sure you were going with that, and I, I've heard many, many people describe that. And you actually you made a comment about a pheasant. You'll know, hear, I'll hear. A, you will often hear people talk about a dog that. Figures out how to run ahead of a pheasant, and stop it, and block it. Really, if you know, if anybody had a dog that was smart enough to be able to do that, and I know they're out there, you know, that's a that's a good dog, no matter what you're hunting.
1: But it's it's in it's in the genetics, you know. I'm not saying every line over there is like that. Yeah. But dogs that came to the U.S. have been bred how many different ways, you know? And when you try to meet this specialty, that specialty, that specialty, that one, that one. You lose something, you know, and that's why I wanted to go back. I can't go back in time, but I'd rather go back to somewhere that they they are still reading pretty much the same way they did over 100 years ago for the same purpose. And, and that's my choice. Right. You know, it's it's not meant for everyone, but it's what I love. You know, I wouldn't ever have to pull the trigger and be happy grouse hunting. I love to see everything leading up to that. And the dog work. The dog work is what just makes me thrilled. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like grouse. But...
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny, Anna. I was actually thinking about this morning. I was thinking about that this morning because as many times as I've had you on here, you know, we always have so much fun talking about grouse and habitat and stuff. You know, we don't—we never talk about shotguns or anything like that. I mean, do you carry the gun all all fall? I mean, do you do you? I know you guide it a lot. I'm I'm assuming you didn't carry the gun then, but <laughs> do you just go out there and run the dogs?
1: There's A lot of times, I just go out and run the dogs, but a lot I take a gun with me, and I and the guys laugh at me because it's small. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what is what is it? What is it? Tell me about it.
1: Well, it's just, it's just a. I have a, uh, just a 410, okay. and I use an older 28. It's nothing fancy. I don't want anything fancy because if I bang it up in the woods, I'll feel terrible. <laughs> you know? So so it's a beater gun. You know, it's like if I drop it on a rock, I'm not going to have a heart attack. <laughs> it's just, it's nothing fancy, but it's just. You know, I'd like to drop a bird for a dog and everything, sure. you know, and do and finish the whole cycle. Yeah, I, I work at doing that. Yeah. But in the same token, there's a phone or there's something in my pocket or a GoPro or whatever, catching this and thinking about how it looks on the screen. You know, I could watch dogs work birds. And that, that intensity, the look, and then, oh, my God, when you're out west and the wind is blowing that feathering all over, it's just gorgeous. Mm, yeah,
0: yep. I very much agree with you in that. And that is, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast, but I I started experimenting for the second time with a GoPro last late last season in December. And it was really, this kind of ties into some of this conversation that we're having here, which I find quite interesting. I I was going to ask you about, relocating and stuff. And, and I'll tell this little anecdote first, and this is my, she would have been, gosh, maybe five or six months old at the time, my puppy rose. And as you remember, Ann, we had very ideal December hunting conditions last year, we didn't have a lot of snow there. I mean, there were areas that I was snow free well into December. And cool. I had, I had this pup that my n- main goal was just, Hey, we've got an opportunity here. I've got to get her out on birds as much as I can. And she was really hitting her stride. And there was a day that I went out. It was, I mean, the stars and moon aligned. I I hunted a new spot. Had never been in there. Got in there. The cover was absolutely beautiful, and my little dog just had a pheno- phenomenal day. And there was one contact in particular. It was three grouse where we were working. I was hunting this this country that it's kind of like river raviney country, and there's lots of tri- okay. lots of tributaries and ravines and creeks and. I'm, I'm hunting on the edge of, say that again.
1: That is a hard way to
0: hunt. That's hard. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. There, there is some, you get into some challenging spots. That's for sure. And, and this one in particular, my dog Rose went on point and I walked in and I mean, this whole thing was so drawn out. I walked in there and even it was a good point, everything looked good. Nothing happened. She starts to move. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm alert. I'm keyed up. She kind of starts running circles around me. I think she may be pointed again. Nothing really happened. And it got to the point where it was like, okay, you know, heart rate comes back down. We're moving on. And I'm like about to, to climb out of this ravine. Well, sure enough, as soon as you do that, then the dog's on point the other way. And then we got into this sort of tango with these birds where I knew she was working birds. She was on point And I was kind of doing that I was right alongside her and she was moving and pointing and staying right with these birds. And what ended up happening is I was walking along the side of this, this slope and it came to a cut in the ravine. And so I got to an opening and I stepped, I stepped out of this Aspen hazelbrush mix and I looked down the slope and sure enough, I saw, I think I saw one grouse on the ground and then it was like the whole slope started to move. Three grouse got up flushed in the wide open I shot twice, missed them both, <laughs> and I was. It was a major letdown, but I was like so over the top with just the the way that Rose stuck with those birds and was relocating them and tracking them. I mean, it was just, it was a sight to see, it. and I think it was the next day I went out and bought a GoPro because, like you, I'm like that. That kind of stuff is just. I mean, that's why you're out there. Like I, w- I wanted to capture that.
1: Yeah, it is. There's something. I don't know, it's just so sort of magical about it. And I mean, it sounds like you're trying to, I mean, really, I think a lot of us, when we talk about those of us that are, I'm not saying other people aren't, but then there's just people like me that are a little over the top about it. It's almost like you're trying to paint a picture in your mind yeah. of what you're seeing, because there's so many things that you're seeing. You know, the wind, the, the birds, the trees, the colors, the 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 sun shining off the dew. All those things. There's the smell that you can't put in a picture, but you'll never forget. Like this morning, the wood smelled great. I mean, it was there that moisture, and it had just had a really tiny bit of rain last night. And it was just, it, it, it was everything that wraps up. I don't think grouse hunting, for some, is only the birds. But for most of us, I think it's all those things that we've been talking about here. And it's like playing a chess match in the woods with yep. your best friend your dog and when you connect you connect and you're happy but it's not the end of the world that you didn't connect because you know what that that memory's been printed put, put on your mind yeah for, the rest of your life.
0: for me it's always been i'm like willing to try gadgets and technology and stuff like i'm kind of on the front end of stuff but it's always at what point does it get in the way of that experience you know and i i'm probably i'm probably walking that tightrope a little bit but now now i feel like like i feel like the cameras and stuff are to the point where you can run them and they can be pretty unobtrusive and i mean just in in running it for 10-15 days last december the footage and stuff that i got it's like that having having those memories like on video is just i'm going to be wearing it all season this year and i can't wait (laughs)
1: <laughs> which one so which i have the i've
0: got the gopro hero 9 and there are a couple of uh it was the first one i would had, had since the gopro hero 4 and the hero 4 just the audio wasn't good because it had to be in a case and they didn't have the motion stabilization back then and the the two things like the the yep. couple of things that i noticed is that their motion stabilization is unbelievable now And because it's waterproof and it doesn't need to be in a case, you actually get pretty good audio just with the Mm -hmm. camera. So the quality of it all is incredible. And there's also, I may have talked about this on the podcast, but there is a feature now that started with the nine, which I assume they'll keep and I hope they do. It's called hindsight. And that is, you used to have to basically be for grouse hunting, you had to be always rolling. So you record, you know, you go and record four hours of footage and how much action do you have you know maybe a couple of minutes well with hindsight you can set that on and what the camera is doing is it's always recording and dumping basically the the previous 30 seconds and so Mm -hmm. you go and you hunt and dog goes on point well let's say let's just say a bird flushes right in front of you and it gets up and you shoot it you can once the bird is falling or the dust settles so to speak you hit record and you pick up 30 seconds behind you plus anything forward and you're you're not missing any of that action and i i had a couple of hiccups with it last year one in particular that it was actually the i think it was the last bird that i killed in the season and it would have been perfect to get but i it the camera didn't capture it but anyways it it worked very well and what you end up with at the end of the day is then you've got just the clips of the stuff you want to see and i don't have to go back and sort through hours of of nothingness and so that was very helpful to me
1: yeah and i like the gopro too i mean i really do um it's we're living in a good time right now yeah Yeah. try try you know same thing i like gadgets and and anything to take pictures (laughs) yes
0: yeah yeah (laughs) all right so so back to the questions here and this is a dog one. This is from Caleb. He says, how far do you like your dog to range in the grouse woods? And then he says, how to correlate that to training? So maybe I'm, I'm gathering that he's asking, do you train, how do you work with your dogs at their range, or is it just genetic and natural?
1: Um, I think there's dogs that want to push out, you know, like some of the field trial lines, and, that, and that's going to be normal. But, you know, for the most part, range is different for everyone. We all have a different range that we like i'm training puppies so i'm going to keep them close and i'm talking half a gun range i'll set that there my idea is to set it there for the new owner and then as the dog becomes more proficient knows what it's doing and the two of them are in tune he can let it go for what he feels comfortable with but for me when i was guiding the rule of thumb for me was because i had clients and the clients are paying the grouse hunt, but they're also paying to see a grouse hunt. And if I had told them and looked at my GPS and told them that we got to go 80 yards this way, I don't think I would have had the customers. They like to see the hunt unfold in, in the woods, and that's how I ended up basically doing this is that They're going to see the dogs about 75 to 85% of the time. They're going to see the dog quartering. They're going to see the dog hit scent a lot of the times and they'll see the point, the release and get in. It's actually with guiding, it's quicker to get them into position if they can see part of this and then trying to run to a dog. And then the, then the bird is already gone. That's how I like to hunt. That's what my clients wanted. And you know, When you're young, like you, Nick, you know, you're going to be moving through that woods really fast. Let's put 30 years on you and you're going to say, I can get through the woods pretty good like I can right now. But boy, I sure don't want to go flying over a log. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, your idea of range will change with your age and sometimes even your dogs will change with your age. You know, and it's, uh, you know, someone should have told me this 30 years ago. <laughs> so range is, is it's a tough question to answer because but I know what I like. Yeah. That doesn't mean that's what you're gonna like.
0: Yeah, Yeah, very good. All right. Uh question from Rennick Wingdogs. He says, Can you address the importance of young forest in general besides aspen?
1: Young forest in general, it gives you the stem density for for grouse. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be aspen because there's areas, I mean, you get farther south and you don't have aspen. Correct. Um, you're going to have some of the places, you're going to have oak clear cuts. Um, you'll have that. It's the density of that young forest and the canopy it provides, but then changes what the floor covering will be of those small plants and things like that. That density is key, you know. And that's what you get with a young forest. So in the beginning, when the young forest starts out, it's sort of wide open and not a lot of green. But then as it gets older, a canopy starts to form. And it, the canopy almost looks like after a certain point, like each canopy is being interlaced or sewn together with the one next to it, so it's a full canopy. When you have that, then you have the lush plants and the strawberries and bunchberries or whatever else might be someplace else. And you know what? That bird can run around down underneath there and not worry about avian predators. You know, it's when you, it's, it's just, it's a safe haven for those birds. And they only have so much time that that canopy will be like that. And then they got to search for something else. And what if the next one's 10 miles away? You know? Yeah. So it's, it's important to have enough of it interlaced because if you want a population, it's not good enough to have a bunch of little ten-acre squares all over the place, because you got ten acres of you've got, you got, think about all the perimeters you have, you know, mm-hmm. with the, like the patchwork cuts. It's nice, nice concept, but you know what? There's a reason why when they cut the Andorondikes, they had so many grouse in there, and because it was it was contiguous pretty much. I'm not saying you got to cut to that extent, right. but these birds, okay. Eight to 12 acres roughly for a male, 40 some acres for, you know, I think it's 44 for a hen to raise a brood. And, you know, then you got, I think, 25 to 35 acres roughly for the hens when they regroup in the wintertime. And if you don't have enough of it, you're not going to have very many birds and it becomes like a fox at a hen house.
0: Yeah. Early successional habitat, you know, is pretty much synonymous with, with grouse and it's called that for a reason. It doesn't just mean aspen, it means young forest and yep. there are there are different regions of the country that will dictate grouse use things other than aspen aspen gets talked about a ton because it is a primary primary species of tree in a lot of the grouse range but it's it's really you know stem density is the term that I like because you know it's kind of it doesn't doesn't evolve the species and that, you know that's what you're looking for stem density and structural diversity if if it looks like a mess to get through it's probably worth looking at.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the range of the grouse to the range of Aspen, overlay those two together, you'd be surprised how quick, how much they, they almost fit hand to hand. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. You got to go with what you have where you're at. Right.
0: Yeah. So this is a. I'm slipping this question in here. Are are <laughs> are, are maples good for anything but maple syrup? And
1: Boy, I like maple syrup.
0: <laughs> I do too. I really love maple syrup. Yeah. I've developed a sort of a disdain for maple trees.
1: <laughs> you know what? Maple syrup's good on, I found this out in college, popcorn. Really? Yeah, not buttery, but regular, just regular old popcorn before you put the salt and everything in everything It
0: was good. <laughs> I could see, you know, I mean, I love caramel corn, so I could see if you could almost find a way to glaze oh, over maple syrup. That would be fantastic.
1: Vanilla ice cream.
0: Oh, yes, yes. That one I have tried and I, I do recommend. Yep.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's really good. Okay, <laughs> off the food. <laughs> okay, so maples. Now, maples are more in the north. You, know, you really find that as a dominant. Vermont, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. part of Maine, and New York, all that type of stuff. Okay, there is a time that the birds go in there. But here's what you need to do sometime when you're in a maple stand versus the aspen stand. Stem. Aspen stands, the leaves... The leaves decay faster in an aspen stand than they do in the maple stand.
0: You mean okay. meaning decay on the ground?
1: Yeah. Okay. Right down. Yeah. Well, there's there's not the leaf litter. There's a reason woodcocks I think have long bills so they could push through all those doggone maple leaves to sure. find the worms. Yep. You know, and they you've seen them go and take their feet, pull up, pull the stuff off their bill. You know, and and but that's. There are, but the problem is with maple standards, you don't get the diversity of veget- small plant vegetation.
0: Yeah.
1: And part of that problem is because if you just scuff the leaves back in a maple, young maple stand sapling area and those leaves don't decay. But it also holds the moisture in really well, which then goes for worm bedding. And, and a lot of times, you know, woodcocks like to loaf around them. You know, I have found grouse in them, but it's not... The food source is different. It's just a place to run through in a lot of ways. There's an edge to an aspen stem.
0: Yeah, that kind of uh, affirms my sort of understanding. And I'm I'm sort of half-joking. I mean, I certainly appreciate uh, uh, looking at a maple tree in the fall. But when you get a big—it's a a later successional species, right? So if if maples all of a sudden take over a landscape— they get this big, huge, shady canopy, and they shade everything out underneath, and that's where you kind of get that barren understory. And yep. uh, as a grouse hunter, you just kind of look at that and think, gosh, this could be so much more.
1: Well, and there's no diversity there. Right. Just, it's just saplings. But I can tell you, I've gone through those. One time, I had clients that wanted to hunt in the rain, and it was pouring. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, this is the most stupid thing I've done in a long time. <laughs> but they were paying for it. Sure. And so we went out and I was headed toward a big area that had a big patch of conifers right you know, with good coverage and I knew it was gonna happen. Those birds that are gonna be in there are gonna go from one tree to the next tree, they're gonna shoot up the woods, shoot up the limbs, and nothing. But they'll have fun and 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 the dog really can't point hardly at all because the birds are way up in the tree. But we went through an area, and it was all young maple saplings, and I was surprised the amount of woodcock in it, though well, they had fun shooting at woodcock, then and then then we found another patch on the way back so but um got drenched, we found woodcock, they shot at woodcock, we found the the grouse and the pines, but uh yeah, the woodcock thing and the maples that's where they were
0: yeah i was I was just talking to somebody. I'm I'm forgetting the specifics, but you're alluding to it basically. In that, she works for the Minnesota DNR, and she was commenting how you know in the maple stands under all that leaflet, I mean, it's very very good for worms, and and that's why woodcock are in the maple stands a lot.
1: Yep. yep. Yeah, I had I was able to talk with a gal that that was her study it was about she was working on her master's or PhD on worms.
0: Okay. Yep.
1: And we got in about worms and soil. And maple stands. And that was really an interesting.
0: Do you conversation. do you remember if it was her name Lindsay? No. Okay. No. All right. Because that's because I was talking to Lindsay, and she's like she's uh, It wouldn't have surprised me if that was this. That was the same person. But okay. Um. All right. Last question here that we had submitted in. Um. And this is from Jack, and he really asking if you have any concerns over the sustainability of grouse grouse hunting with, with current levels of hunting pressure and sort of the habitat that is available to them in middle slash northern Wisconsin?
1: Well, there's, here's the thing. Okay, I was curious about that a little bit. So doing the GIS work that I do, I grab the information for the state. I went back 25, 30 years. And for the state, they're basically cutting within almost the same amount of woods that they're cutting back then. I mean, what I did is I looked at what was available that was 9 to 16. And I did it, you know, I think it was, I don't know, 30, just say 30 years, 20 years, 10 years now. Yep. And it was pretty close. Now, the federal, that's the whole different mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: County forest, they're doing, that. I mean, that's important for county income is, those, is that logging. So I was pleased with the state and the county, but the other part that we're losing is a lot of the MFL forest croplands are, you know, people, a lot of people that own them, like to see something pine green uh, year round. And so in the aspen cuts are sort of like the ugly duckling. They look pretty rough in the beginning, but then they're beautiful later on. Yeah. Uh, so you're losing some of the aspen cuts unless you're a, you know, commercial forest land type of situation, but like the individual 40, 80, 100-acre landowner. Yeah. We may not do those cuts anymore.
0: Private land in general, I think, is a huge... There's a lot less cutting there just with the parcelization and, and lack of active management.
1: We're fortunate to the Great Lakes here for the amount of public land that we do have. Right. And there's a lot of diversity
0: with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got a, I have a, just a couple questions here left and then we're, I'm going to, I want to give you a chance to, we'll speak about maps and stuff before we, before we wrap it up. But I wanted to ask you about, this is a very uh, specific to me, but hopefully it'll benefit somebody else too. And I'm asking you because of your, you know, sled dogs and your, your knowledge of dogs. And I, my seven-year-old English setter Hartley, he tore his cruciate ligament last fall. And I've talked about this before. I had the TPL surgery done his recovery well let me say this when they diagnosed his torn cruciate last fall the vet noticed she told she pointed out some arthritis in his right hip so opposite his left torn cruciate he had arthritis in his right hip and what we've seen now is that his surgery leg has made pretty much a full 100% recovery it looks great muscle looks good he's running really well on it but i I was confused while he was recovering this early spring and over the summer because he just did not seem to have the drive in his back legs. And I didn't know if it was, you know, my, my assumption was it was the TPLO leg. Well, in a recent vet visit, we went in there and they pointed out that his right leg, is, you know, there's there's still more atrophy on his right leg. And, and now when I'm watching him, I can see that I'm pretty sure my casual observation that his right hip is what's, is what's causing this where he's not driving through on the back leg. And so what I want to ask you is about, I've, I've done some research and I'm starting to look into remedies or treatments or anything for, you know, arthritis in the hip of a dog. And I've come across these injections that are adequate injections. So my question to you is, have you heard of anything like that? Have you used anything? What are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I've heard of that. And and I've had people say that it works, Dosequin or cosquin or something like that. Uh, that's a oh I'm darn a blank on the name. It's uh oh not a probiotic, but it's um what is it they use for joint? Oh, you it's mean
0: jo- glucosamine?
1: Yeah, it's yes, like a glucosamine yeah. for joint. I've, I've got that's him it. on
0: that. Yep, yep.
1: Yeah, so that that's important. Yep. Does your dog like to swim?
0: He does actually. He does, and he's we've got quite a bit of water work this summer. I think that, I think that played a lot into his, because one thing I've heard is the underwater treadmill is one of the most effective rehab techniques for the TPLO. And we just so happen to have, like when we go to my cabin, it's just a shallow sandy beach. There's, it's sandy bottom water and Hartley just, it's just him. Rose doesn't do it, but Hartley is obsessed with the bluegills and he will go down there for hours on end. I mean, unless I literally pull him out of the water, he will wade up and down the shore on the sandy bottom through the water, chasing bluegills. And he's, he did that all summer. And I think that really helps. It's basically an underwater treadmill.
1: Yeah. I mean, water therapy, I'll just make a quick story. A uh, sled dog gets hit in the back. Um, shatters the pelvis. Uh, they had to cut the head of the femur off form a false socket, plate between the pelvis to hold it together, pins, screws, the whole nine yards. Um, and I did... It was still cold in March where I was at, and I was doing water therapy, uh, swimming the dog in the pond. I had chest waders on and swimming that dog over and over and over again because it's it just helps them because they're not pushing against something. It's, yeah. it's just a lot easier for them, you know, and the fact that, you know, you're looking into the shots, you know, I would do some um, x-rays to see where where you stand. You have a baseline right now, so then you're going to want to just keep up on that. And you're feeding the glucosamine chondroitin is good. I don't know if laser therapy would help on anything like that or not. I mean, ask your vet, I mean this yeah. is a bone thing that's causing that, and granted, I've had laser therapy done on a lot of dogs that have had you know small tears in the muscles or like strained hips and things like that, but you know when you hurt down there, you hurt down there,
0: yeah, yeah, got it, yeah, I just wanted to run that one by you and get your thoughts and i've got a I've got a call into my vet i we didn't connect last week, but I'm gonna call again tomorrow and just kind of go over that because i had just come across this adequate and as far as I understand, you know, I will I will certainly consult the vet, but it seems to be a very low risk, high reward possibility. There's there's really not really any side effects from it and a lot of anecdotal stuff that I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true, Ann, right? <laughs> you know, <I'm> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people seem to have good results and and for me, you know, I'm I've committed to this recovery and to see him to see him bounce back so quickly on the left side, um, you know, it's just, it's a bummer to see the, his right side holding him back. So I'm just kind of looking into stuff there. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about, not to sort of have the last question be like a, a downer thing, but I just wanted to, you mentioned something earlier that made me think of it, but I didn't have this written down or anything, but w- wolves wanted to get your thoughts on how do you think about going into wolf country, which you know, I've said this many times before, there's not a place that I hunt that isn't wolf country, so it's just something I live with, but what are your thoughts around that and do you take any precautions or do you do anything in particular to avoid encounters with wolves?
1: Well, I honestly believe the bigger your dogs run, the higher your chances of having something happen.
0: hmm yeah.
1: Um, and I'm not trying to, I'm just saying that's just the way it is, that's why it happens to bear dogs.
0: Yeah yeah
1: you, know, you, you you just don't realize that these animals are very territorial and if you happen to be going through an area that they have young pups well it won't be good um
0: yeah
1: I think a lot of hunting is it's not only watching the dog it's watching everything around you and I'm not saying I'm not looking for wolves I'm looking for wolf sign
0: yeah
1: you know and if you start to see you know, the scat with the fur and the bones in it and the size of it, and you're consistently seeing it, and you, you, you go up and say, I'm on the fifth pile here. I'd leave. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: and you have, ask me twice. I don't care how many birds we'd be putting up. I would leave, and I'm looking for tracks and that. I mean, I was I had a friend fly in from PA, and uh, we were looking around, and and I said, that's an awful lot of bear tracks. And I said they're they're running the hounds right now. I know they're pushing the bear, but I said, Look at all the woodcocks. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, they had multiple, you know, bear tracks on it. That's wolf country there too.
0: Yeah. Um, big, these
1: big blocks. You know, you can have it happen anywhere. Yeah. There isn't a cut that you can go in that you can't say a wolf hasn't gone through it. Right. I think it's knowing where your dog is. I think it's the other thing I don't I won't do, this is just me. You know, maybe you want to call me chicken. And there's part of me that is a chicken. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't hunt right till dusk because things start to change and go bump in the night.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You
1: know, and I try to be back to the vehicle when it's, you know, you'll start to hear the owls kick in or the coyotes and all that or whatever. You know, you know, if you hear coyotes, I'm fine. It's when I don't hear coyotes that I wonder, okay, this is more wolf country. Because the coyotes and the wolves don't like to be around each
0: other. Yeah, I've heard that. But
1: but yeah, I just, uh, you have to make decisions on how you would handle your own situation. But I um, just be very aware. Yeah. It's so different than looking for traps. Yep. You know, you just have to be aware of your surroundings. And you're looking for signs. Yep. And, you know, one of the signs that people don't really know is... If you go through a high grass area, you say say they're cutting, you know, in high grass for me is like four feet high. <laughs> you know? uh, but if you see tunnels that are two and a half to three feet high, that's wolves mm-hmm. or coyotes. But usually, they're higher, and it's like a tunnel that keeps going through because they they just go from one side of the trail and cross. Yeah, they're running. Then I start to worry about things um, because I know I'm crossing their past where they're running from one side to the other to get to here and there. Those are the things. It's more than just scat and it's more than just you know, in sandy areas a lot of times on a little bit of a plateau will be like a rendezvous area. So it's just things with look at.
0: Yeah. I I think I had told this story on the podcast before but we had a day last fall where we basically just did everything you told me not to (laughs) it was our last hunt of the day we were walking down this road i had my puppy and i was with my buddy jay from michigan and there was two other guys they went another way and we saw three or four piles of wolf scat on the ground and kept on hunting. And we had an uneventful hunt. You know, we got in some birds and except for the fact that my puppy Rose, who gosh, she was probably three or four months old at the time. It was right when she was, she was sort of becoming very independent and confident. And she had two instances where she was 400 yards away from me during this hunt. And I was kind of, and that was just so, it was so uncharacteristic of her up to that point And I got her back and she was there for a minute and then she was gone again. And then she was like six or 700 yards away from me. And like, it's one of those things where if, if I don't, if you don't have a GPS caller, I mean, like I would have had a heart attack probably, but like just the fact that I could look down and see where she was, was the only reason that I was able to, you know, halfway keep my cool. And what are you going to do? It's not like she can hear you. I'm not going to shock her or anything when she's that far away, but you know, by some
1: was Was she running a straight line?
0: um you know what it it may have been a straight line out but then she was gone for so long you know and then it's hard to it's hard to say I didn't actually I could probably go back and look at the map it didn't appear to me I know at the time I didn't think oh she's chasing a deer you know I wasn't thinking that I'm not saying that she wasn't but she ended up being away from me for quite a while but she did find her way back which is crazy to think about anyways you know a little puppy like that being able to 700 yards away from me and somehow find her way back and so then we basically we get the dogs in and we're walking out as the sun is setting it's right at dusk we get back to the truck the dogs are all put up away we're sitting on the tailgate having a beer and not 30 seconds later a pack of wolves howls off not very far away from us and it's just that has just stuck with me so much because it was you know it just so happened to be the time that the dog was my, the furthest away from me she's ever been. And they were right there, Ann.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they'll they'll know you're right there too. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and it's whether or not they decide to cut a dog out. Right. You know, if it runs big. Um, yeah. It's 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 no fun, and if your dog comes back and stays with you, yes, don't get after it. Get to your vehicle and leave.
0: Yep, I, that has not happened to me, and that was not Rose's behavior. So I think that because I I was thinking that too. But I've had friends that have had dogs make a cast and all of a sudden come back and won't leave their side. And yeah, I mean, at that point that's where it's, you know, use your observation skills and get the heck out of there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you might as well pack it in and hunt another day. Yeah.
0: Well, before we totally wrap up, we've been talking for quite a while here and I'm really glad we covered a lot of good stuff, but let's talk maps. We want to give you a chance of course, to make us aware of any updates, anything new, anything at all that you want to share regarding scout and hunt and, the awesome maps that you make.
1: Oh thank you. Um we basically we've got, you know, the the four you know, New England maps in the core uh well I'll just rattle it off quick. Wisconsin, Michigan and uh Minnesota. Yep. Then you jump to PA, New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh Maine, then you drop down to West Virginia, West Virginia. I also mapped down in that area the uh uh Timber company lands as well, and showing the habitat there. Uh, then we've got Virginia, mainly eastern Tennessee, you know Tennessee there, and it would be mainly western, excuse me, North Carolina. Then we will we'll jump into Iowa. Will be ready here in a couple of weeks, but their season's not open. But then North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma is all updated and in there. Montana and Idaho is done. In the next two days, I'll be releasing Wyoming and Colorado. Then probably in about next week, you'll see hopefully Washington. And I've got four more states coming, Washington, Oregon, Utah, Nevada, and then a little bit later on, you'll see New Mexico and Arizona all this year.
0: Awesome. That's a lot more than last year. And I know we talked about this a little bit last year, but traditionally, you know, the focus was on rough grouse and woodcock. So give us a what should people expect when we're talking about these states that are clearly outside of the rough grouse and woodcock range? What are they going to be looking at on your maps?
1: The way we've set up the crop data and we've done crop data for quite a few years is that you'll zoom in and some of these maps, I mean like some of these states have four maps They'll have what's a base layer, which is going to have your transportation, your hydrology, all of your um, public lands, and that information and then each layer shows up at a certain level okay and then you'll see one that'll say crops woodlands and grasslands so when you look at crops you're looking at at least 20 different types and if you look at woodlands it's showing you conifer hardwoods conifer hardwoods mix shrub and then the grassland uh areas would be your pasture hay, or just regular like a grass or alfalfa. Yeah. And so as you zoom in at 1 to 75,000, you'll see an image appear of crops, and the same, it's in about one click in, you'll see a dot appear, which is color-coded, and like, let's just say C for corn. You can click on the dot, and it'll give you the, it's actually what's called, in our terminology, in GIS, it's a centroid, and you click on that, and it'll give you corn, the acreage and that information, and then because you've got imagery as your very base or the bottom of the map or topple, but most of the people have imagery at about one to thirteen or fourteen thousand. The shapes of the crop dissipate, and you're left with seeing the imagery and the dot and the sea. So you can see all the imagery, and you can see the edge of the field and everything. If you still have the identification of that crop layer, we also then the other layers that we put in there is the wetland data. We put a lot of wetland data in there that would you know give you information to like cattail sloughs, places that periodically or you know would flood or not flood seasonally. And then when you get farther out west, we show cuts on federal lands all the way up to all the way back to 2020. And they're bracketed into two different groups, um, so that's what we've done. And you've got the, you know, the public land information as well, and that information. But it's it's tying in the cut some of the cuts for where people are interested in. It's tying in the uh, the wetlands information, very detailed wetlands because a lot of that's going to be edges and things, and then shrub component yeah. is important, and uh, where your breaks and your cover are, and then one of the things that I'll be putting together a list here pretty quick. It's called WMS and RTS servers, web map servers. You'll have the ability to bring in data and like add different base maps that aren't even on the base map layer. So I'm putting in that information here and that'll be available to everyone that has the maps and they can just bring in, you know, about six or seven extra base maps and there'll be other data that they'll be able to bring in. Cool. And, that's sort of neat. So it's it's different in the Midwest here, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and in Michigan. I locate uh, a lot of the uh, like Minnesota is hard with the county lands, but I'm showing the the cuts on the county lands, and then I'm showing you know, Wisconsin and Michigan have a really detailed commercial forest land information. I show the cuts and
0: habitats on that as mm. well. Excellent. And is it still it's still uh you pretty much are are buying access to a certain state, right? So if you're going to Minnesota or Wisconsin, you buy buying, it's it's on a per state basis. Do you have any other
1: Yeah, we have a bundle okay. that that you can purchase and, and uh it would cover everything that we map.
0: Okay, very cool. Very cool. All right. And where can folks go to learn more about the maps?
1: They can go to www.mobile Huntingmaps.com, and you could also type in scout hunt, you know, scout and hunt with an N in between.
0: Yep.
1: Um, you can do that, and that's where you would find out about it.
0: All right, sounds good. I will do my usual roundup of all sorts of appropriate links and contact information, and we'll make that available to folks in the show notes. And I think that about wraps up our conversation today, And It was a fun one, informative. I look forward to this every year, and I really want to thank you and and just say how much I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to me and the listeners. Thank you, Ann. No,
1: No problem. No problem. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, Ann, we will keep in touch. I wish you the best of luck this season. Go have some fun with the dogs, and uh, we'll talk soon, okay?
1: Okay, take care. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Eucaduba Sporting Dog, USA, Garmin, Sage and & Breaker, and Dakota 283. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries, They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.